Um, for those of you listening on the podcast, welcome. Uh, there are those who will be listening on by podcast rather than attending on Sundays. There are those across the seas who will be listening by podcast because their own services have been cancelled for the time being. Uh, ben and Miriam, I had a message from Miriam this morning saying there's no church service for us today. Um, and we don't know when our next one will be. Uh, so we're going to seek your podcast out again, listen to your sermons. <laughs> so a um, little bit more weight there. Just to... So just to maybe link from what Mike shared, thank you very much, Mike. He was there. Oh, he's there. Thank you very much, Mike, for that. Just to link that, we sing those words. Um, each of us is in a different place. Yes, there's a shared uh, concern that we have, maybe a shared health concern with, with coronavirus, but each of us is also in a different place. And our worries and concerns are probably different, maybe for family, maybe we have elderly relatives, maybe we have young children living with us, maybe that we have distant friends and relatives that we can't do anything about. Each of us will have those different cares and concerns. Uh, And now is the time when we really need to put into practice what we've been doing, of looking to God for all of those things. So yes, let's do those things. Let's look out for our communities. More about that later. So maybe this links through to what I'm preaching. But each of us is in a different place and has different cares and concerns. Let's be aware of that for each other. And listen to what we're saying. Listen to what we're sharing. Listen to what each other is saying. And and pray and support each other in our particular circumstances. Anyway, so we are starting a new series this morning uh, on the book of Ruth. What an amazing book this is to um, to study and to read. Uh, it's a personal story. It's a personal story set in the times of the judges. That's around about uh, 1150 BC. Uh, but the date of writing is not clearly known. But it's a lovely, easy read. If you want a short story and you want to be encouraged... Ruth is a lovely, easy read, and we can learn so much from it about God's supreme and amazing, redeeming love for us. So our first session this week, we're going to talk a bit about relationships, um, which seems quite apt at the moment. But I'm going to read chapter uh, 1. I'm going to read chapter 1, therefore, from Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, please do turn to that. Ruth is in the Old Testament. It comes just before Samuel and at the end of Judges, so you can find that. Um, And it's, as I say, quite a nice, easy read. So it starts. In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Try saying that with your teeth out. They then went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Marlon and Chilion died, so the woman was left with her two, without her two sons and without her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed And it's round and round and round. And it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in, in the history of, of the nation and what's going on. But what Ruth does is brings us back to the individual and looks at an individual's experience in that. Okay, so it's the time of Judges. Ruth is a historical narrative, okay? It's not poetry. It's not it's not um, visionary-type words. It's historical narrative, and we can take the details of this story as true. Evidence. What's the evidence for that? In particular, Ruth is identified as an ancestor of King David, and hence Jesus. That's towards right at the very end. She's one of just five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, the one that's found in the Gospel of Matthew, alongside with Tamar, Rahab, the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, and with Mary. It's historical narrative. Jewish tradition has it written, it's written by Samuel. If you remember, it was Samuel who lived, he lived about a hundred years later, but it was he who went out and anointed the young King David. Do you think he would have found out a bit about his family and his roots? I think so. And at the end of the book, as I say, it's clear that, that, um, that this is set in time and in place uh, and, in, and in a genealogies as well. And so we can take this as a historical narrative, something that happened to people. I want us to look at the names of the characters. Who knows names are important? Names are important. When you're studying the Bible, when you're reading something, especially those names which you really find difficult to pronounce, take a look. Go to some resources online or whatever. Find out what those names mean. So, characters. We have Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech, my God is king. Wow, what a name. Naomi, my delight. Wow. When you choose your names for your children, do you choose them wisely? I think Naomi is a lovely name, isn't it? My delight. And so they have some sons. Marlon means sick. (laughs) Chilion means pining. Now, think back to our context. Where are we? Israel is going like this. Round, up in the heights of, of knowing God and down into the depths. And when she goes down into the depths, God brings some judgment against her. 
And so thinking, okay, so Elimelech and Naomi's parents may well have been living in that blessed time when Israel's walking with the Lord. And so they're delighted and they will call their children, you know, my God is king or or, my delight. Elimelech and Naomi are living in a different time, as we've seen. There's famine. Things are not good. I dare say it's in a challenging time. And so what do they name their children? (laughs) Sick and pining. I hope you haven't I hope you haven't given your children names like that. But it's interesting. It gives a reflection of what's going on. Really important to kind of dig down into some of these details. Some other names. So, Marlon marries Ruth, which means friendship. Chilion marries Orpah, which means gazelle. You can laugh. It's a lovely name, I think. If you go to Song of Solomon, you will find some interesting references, which you may want to discuss with your parents if you're young. <laughs> However, gazelle, friendship, there's nothing about God in there, is there? But they are joyous kinds of names, I think. Interesting that Ruth's is friendship. How is it that somebody who is, you know, kind of not in touch with God out there in Moab, this, this, this kind of Gentile, godless kind of country, if you like, can choose a name for their daughter, call her friendship, and look where that takes her in life. She names are important. I hope when you name your children, you gave some thought to them and didn't give lots and lots of thought like we did to one of our daughters, and then I came in the next day and Janice's register as something else. But there we go. <laughs> Rosemary is a lovely name. <laughs> Fragrant, beautiful, lovely. So there we are. Names. Names tell us a lot about what's going on in the Bible. They tell us a lot about what's happening in this story too. Where are we? Can you see that red spot just underneath uh, Jerusalem? That's Bethlehem. You can see where the kingdom of Moab is on the other side uh, of the Jordan, on the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, If you can see that, yeah, I haven't zoomed that one in, but just get the general idea of where things are. We start in Bethlehem. In Judah, they move, the story moves into Moab, which is now what we would call Jordan. And then back to Bethlehem again. Elimelech and Naomi were Epaphrathites. They were from Ephrath. Oh gosh, these words are lovely. They're not our language, are they? That's the old name for Jerusalem. So, sorry, the old name for Bethlehem before the occupation by the Hebrews. Uh, Micah 5.2 is a very famous passage you'll know, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, the ancient of days, wonderful prophecy, from this tiny place where these people lived, where Ruth went to live, who was an ancestress. Now, this is, this is not a contemporaneous, if you like, slide. This map is actually from later on in Israel's history, but I just put that there so that you can see where we are. At this point, Israel and Judah have split, so we're much later on in history, but the, the map was a good one just to show you where we are and what we're doing. But what kind of times were these people living in? Famine. 
They were living in a time of famine. As maybe as I've hinted from looking at the names as well, this might have been a, a judgment due to Judah's wayward ideas and not following God the way they should have done. Uh, and so, you know, there's, it, it, the, the scripture tells us that, that, you know, God is, has sent some testing times to them. And Elimelech takes his family across the Jordan and into Moab. Should he have done that, do you think? Should he have done that? Going to live in the land of the heathen. Weren't they told not to mix? They were. Well, they go because there's food. Who would blame them? Do you know what, if you were starving, would you go looking for food? Of course you would. We're not talking, we're not talking panic buying here. We're talking hunger. Real hunger and oppression. And so despite what might have been happening, and the fact is, if they are living in a time of of judgment and testing, they may well have felt God has deserted them. And so they go over to Moab. What happens there? Elimelech dies. We read that. He dies early, and he dies before his son's marriages. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? He dies maybe a youngish kind of man. Um, And so maybe dad has gone. Uh, and and so the lads they marry they marry local girls, which was against mosaic law. So it's not the best start to our story because then the sons die as well. This is quite tragic, tragic. This is quite tragedy. But as we see, as we we'll go through this, it's good because from this tragedy comes amazing. Redemption and an amazing picture of God's love, even, even for the foreigner. That is incredible. Who is the foreigner in our day? It isn't people across the sea because we're all part of one globe. It's people who don't know Jesus, people who are outside of the blessing of knowing Christ as their savior. That's who the foreigner is today. So, Hearing that things have improved back home, Naomi decides to go there, go back to Judah. And she urges her daughters-in-law to return to their families with her blessing. This is a kindly and a positive encouragement. It's not a dismissal. It's not a rejection. She is desperately concerned for her daughters-in-law. Because Jewish tradition was that, you know, if your son died and left your daughter-in-law without a husband, well, she would marry someone else in the family. That may sound a bit weird to us, but this was actually part of the social care package that God put in place for the people of Israel. So they would not remain destitute. It's not about treating women as as, as chattel. It's about saying, there's got to be a way to care for the widow, in our society. And that's what God had instituted at that time. But there wasn't any chance of that, she's saying. Naomi's saying there's absolutely no chance of that. So you should stay with your families here, where there's a possibility for you. And there was much weeping and many tears. Because without a husband for any of them, there would be no provision. There would be no land for living. There would be no life for them. Now, if you look further back into these things, Naomi probably would have had land back in Israel she could go back to, but she could not claim and live with that land unless she had a husband to kind of possess it and own it and work it. And that's why the story pans out as it does later on. 
But this is what she's saying. There's nothing. There is nothing for you back home where I'm going. There's probably nothing for me. Both the daughters-in-law initially vow to come along. They vow to come along. More tears. Second, even more impassioned plea to them. With more tears. And as a result, Orpah does return home. She sees the sense in that and realizes, well, maybe, maybe home is where, you know, where I need to be with my people. But Ruth decides to stay. Ruth decides to stay on and comes to Judah with Naomi. On their return, the whole town gets to hear about them. And when the women of the town come to meet with Naomi, they greet her by name, but she says, don't call me delight. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitterness. She talks, when she was talking to the daughters-in-law then, about the bitterness that she, that the Lord, she says, seems to have visited upon me. And she takes that on, that bitterness, as her identity. Do we do that? Do we take on board the situation we find ourselves in, whatever that is, as our identity? That's wrong. Our identity, as we've sung and as we've shared, is in Christ. But if I look on my identity, maybe maybe I've lost a loved one. Maybe even, like uh, Naomi, lost my husband. And all of a sudden that word widower comes upon her. Oh, you're a widower, aren't you? Oh, yes, Naomi, sorry, widow. Widow, you're a widow. Well, I'd be a widow. She'd be a, wid- she'd be a widow, I'd be a widower. Naomi, the widow. It almost can become your identity. And so that's what she's doing. Her misfortune, the, the struggle and the bitterness she's in, she's taken that on as her identity to the point of changing her name. Not a good place to be. But it reflects, if you like, her situation. It reflects her situation as, as where she is personally. Because don't forget, she's come back to Judah because there's a time of, of, of harvest now. And the Lord seems to have, have changed and, and, and started to bless Judah again. Maybe they've changed their, their attitude towards him. And maybe they've started to walk his ways. And so the harvest is back again. Remember, so much of what we read in the Old Testament is a symbol for us understanding what God's love is like. Remember that. And so here she is in this place when maybe blessing has come back, but she identifies not with the blessing that's in the land, but with the bitterness that is in her and how she feels. So maybe it's timely that she comes back. They've heard. They've heard the news where they are in Moab. And it's a timely thing. They've come back to where they live, where she lives, her home. And it's a time of harvest, but still a time of struggle. And we'll go on next week to see the kind of struggle and how God meets with them all. But what lessons can we learn from this particular part of the story? Well, we know and we've seen what the times are. So what can we learn? We have this phrase, don't we, that's a a common part of our culture, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Were they right to leave Bethlehem? When times get tough, isn't it easy to retreat? 
Isn't it easy to move out? We talk a lot about self-isolation for very good reasons. But do you know what? We tend to do that anyway spiritually if we're not careful. When the times get tough, we tend to spiritually self-isolate or move out. But if we do that, we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of help and support that we need. If we self-isolate spiritually, we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of all that we need. In this story, things may have seemed to have been better initially as they go out to Moab, food and so on. Maybe even some wives for the boys, but probably in the most important ways, they got worse. Elimelech died. I can't find any blame that I would give to him because uh, as, a, as a father, as a husband, don't, don't, guys, don't we want to provide for our families? And wouldn't the imperative be for us to look around and try and solve the system, solve the question and the matter ourselves? Don't we do that, guys? We do. I know I do. I look for how I can solve this situation. So that's what Elimelech has done. But actually, I'm sorry, I think he's taken them into a very, an even worse place. And he dies early. Wanting, he's wanting to feed Naomi and his boys. So who would, who of us would perhaps react any differently? And today, we see exactly the same thing happening. In times of famine and war, people flee. Across our world, there are many, many, many refugees. Many in different parts of the globe. Fleeing because of war, famine, persecution. Yet, in some ways, they also are removing themselves from their family, from situations where, you know, where people could work together. I'm not saying it's right to stay in a war zone with your family. Of course I'm not. But, you know, we need to know where to look spiritually when we are struggling and when things are coming against us. And that becomes even more important as things maybe get worse. Because it's possible, as we see with Elimelech, for people to die even in a land with food. And so the women are left even more alone outside of the protective ordinances in that story of God's law. Who are your people? Who are your people? Spiritually, don't we look to God? And yet when those challenges come, guys, we know, ladies, maybe you know as well, it's so easy to try and solve those things ourselves. But who are your people? Are you part of the people of God? Do you look to God first, even when things are difficult around us? In tragedy, in loss, in death, we naturally look to family, don't we? Family which can rally around. What if we don't have family? Naomi had a husband and sons, but when both have passed away, um, she was left bereft of all family. Her daughters-in-law were close, it seems, but then she realized there was no future for her, out there in Moab. And she thought there was none for her daughters-in-law, for the girls in Judah. Both, she said, should look to their families. But Ruth, however, sticks with Naomi. What did she see in her mother-in-law that convinced her 
to leave home, to leave relatives and go to a foreign land. Amazing two verses. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What a proclamation of faith. She must have seen something of faith in the family. She must have done. Why else would she leave everything you know, that was hers in her family and her land behind and hitch her wagon up to Naomi's and think, I'll go to where this place is. My God, will your God will be my God. That firmly roots it in the spiritual and in faith. Wow. That is amazing. How do you trust God in her situation? Through faith. Through faith. She must have seen practical demonstrations of what, uh, what Naomi was saying and what she was doing. Commitment like that. Commitment like that reminds me in some ways of, of, of the renewal of covenant that Joshua made at Sechem. Joshua 24, you'll find this. Now, therefore, he's praying and speaking to the people, Joshua is. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you you dwell. Choose them. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They were looking into the promised land. They'd entered over the river and there was this time when they were rededicating. And, you know, Joshua is saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a Ruth-like statement of faith and commitment. That is incredible. That is amazing. That is what our commitment to God needs to look like. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. They're not saying, oh, I feel like it's a good idea, or do you know what? Emotionally, that seems right. It's a decision. For as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I will go where you go. Those are decisions of the will, not of the emotion. And that's the depth at which our decision to follow God needs to be. Our commitment to God, our commitment, if you like, to the family of God, to the body of Christ, needs to be in that level. Needs to be in that place. We're in maybe a challenging time at the moment, aren't we? We are. Maybe some of you who have been thinking, is this just part of of what's going on at the end that was predicted? Famine, pestilence, plague. Maybe this is part of what's going on in the end times. I'm not going to make any judgment on that. We know that those things will increase as the time comes. Listen to what Paul says, which I think links that through. In Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together, as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, when things get tough, as they will, as the end approaches, stick together and encourage each other into doing good work. That is what we're called to do in times of difficulty, in times of challenge, whatever those times might be. We're not in a time of famine, although if panic buying goes the way it does, who knows what we'll be eating next week. We're not in a time of famine, but this illness which is spreading around the world will surely challenge us as individuals. How should I act? Well, it's reasonable balance between care of myself and care for the community, care for others around us. Should self-isolation mean from everything and from everyone? Do you know, we've got so many tools by which we can keep in touch with each other, look out for one another, many ways to help each other. And remember, remember this above all things. You have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Illness and disease are around us at all times. This is a particular challenge, maybe, but those things are there. Loss, death of loved ones, those things are there at all times. It may seem closer to us now, and probably does. But do you know what? The enemy steps into those situations, whether they're just for me personally, or for whole communities, or for whole nations. The enemy steps into those situations with fear and panic. That is what he likes to do. That is his MO, his modus operandi. Spread fear and panic. That's not what the Bible says. Paul writes to Timothy when he's struggling with his new church and and, and things aren't going well, there's a bit of opposition and people are saying, oh, you're too young to teach us. He's saying, look, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let us move in love, move in power, and move in self-control in these days. There's some lessons. I shared this, I think I shared it on the church um, Facebook page. You may have seen it, some other things, um, from a friend of ours, Ken Baker, who you may know visited some while ago here in the church. And he was talking and sharing on Facebook about how when Martin Luther was dealing with the Black Death Plague, real, proper plague, he wrote these wise words that can help us inform the way in which we approach the world right now. Martin Luther writes, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. I shall ask God to protect us. Then I shall fumigate help purify the air, administer medicines, and I shall take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person 
but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. Let us find that way of how God calls us to live our lives in the here and now. Let us find those ways of taking care of ourselves and our neighbours in love, with self-control, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us do those things. Let's not be afraid. Fear comes from the enemy. But let's seek God for the peace that only he brings in our hearts so that we can live the way the Lord has called us to live. Here's an amazing example. Practical help. Have you seen this on the internet? A bunch of people down in Cornwall have started sending around these postcards. You can download these. You can print them out. If you feel it's appropriate, put them through people you know's door, perhaps, or maybe others in your locality. If you're self-isolating, I can help. Introduce yourself. My name is. Say where you live so they know who you are and where you're from. I live locally at. My phone number. Be a bit vulnerable. Give people your phone number. Let them know they can call you. If you happen to be self-isolating due to COVID-19, I can help with, make a clear offer of what you are willing to do for other people. Just call or text me and I'll do my best to, to offer you help for free. That's amazing. And it's a little bit on the bottom about how coronavirus is a contagious disease. How we should take precaution to ensure we're only spreading kindness Avoiding physical contact where we should. Washing our hands. All these things. And maybe if you're buying something for somebody, leave it on their doorstep. If they're self-isolating, so therefore may be contagious, be careful. Just as Martin Luther took the right kind of precautions. Something practical we can do. Uh, Janice, if you could move on. I just want to kind of move on. We'll perhaps have a time of prayer. But if you'd come and play the last song... A time of opportunity for the ministry. Because how can we, how can we really apply this? I think the number one teaching about this whole part of relationships and who these people were and how they did and what they did is to understand that deep commitment that, uh, that Ruth made to Naomi. Is that the kind of commitment we have to God? Is that the kind of commitment we have to each other? Are we ready to say those kinds of words? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people and my God. Where you die, I will die. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything, but death parts me from you. Is that your kind of commitment to God? So maybe we we should be at this moment thinking about what our commitment is to the Lord. What our commitment is to each other. But also there's another there's another point in here. At the very depth of where she was, Naomi realized what she should do, although it's maybe because there was food there now, she realized what she should do was go back home. Go back to where the Lord's blessing was, is actually what she was doing. And understand that in him, in that relationship, being there with the Lord, with God, is where she should be. Is there anybody here this morning who needs, in a big way or even in a small way, to return back to God, to recommit? Maybe you're in a a physical or even a spiritual Moab 
away from God, apart from God. Maybe you're not enjoying the relationships that there are within the family of God, within the body, because you've taken yourself away or you've, taken your, you've isolated yourself from the body of Christ. There's an opportunity here to make a return. As we stand, are you going to, what are you going to sing? Something now? I have decided, I have resolved to wait on you, Lord. Right, okay. My rock and redeemer, shield and reward, I'll wait upon you, Lord. I will wait upon you. Let's make that song our prayer <clears throat> as we sing it. But also I want to say, if, if you want to come and, and, and just share something uh, and be ministered to at the front, uh, Claire will be here, I will be here. You don't have to hug us, you don't have to shake our hands. We will ask permission if we want to pray with you and lay hands on you. You can ask all those things. But if, if, if returning to God or making a recommitment is what you need to do this morning, and you need to do it in more than just singing some, some words, it may be so real to you, but if you want to come and make that commitment and pray together before God, come to the front. Come to the front, and we will do that with you this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word, which blesses us, enriches us, and encourages us to press in and on and upwards. Lord, may we take these words through this week and live them in your name. Amen.